Last year, an article appeared in the left-leaning Washington Post written by Brian Broom. He argued that the pro-life movement and the right-leaning Supreme Court majority were merely pretending to oppose abortion while secretly were wanting to boost white birth rates for the sake of perpetuating total dominance of the white race. This was the explanation for the opposition to abortion. That is the definition of a conspiracy theory. It is a belief that some group is secretly responsible for an event. And if you're not familiar with conspiracy theories, I say that tongue-in-cheek, let me just throw some out. The election was stolen. QAnon. The moon landing was fake. Chemtrails exist and are harmful. COVID was a ruse. White fragility right-wing violence. I know I've already caused your hair to stand on end. Okay? I'm not suggesting that there is no truth uh, to every one of these theories. But it's difficult to discern the truth in this present political landscape. Because it's where truth is not a valued commodity. We've been told it's the far right that owns the conspiracy theory real estate. But I think one can observe that Democrat and Republican, trust me, this is not about politics, all right? Uh, this has got a point, so just hang on a second before you blow a cork, okay? Um, one can observe that the Democrat and Republicans accuse one another of conspiracies. Now, we hear about right-wing conspiracies all the time. But according to the Jerusalem Post, as they gaze upon our country, liberals were more engaged than conservatives in motivated conspiracy theory endorsements, end quote. I quote this only to make the point that we are misled on the macro and micro level when it comes to conspiracy theories. And the article pointed out that it is most common for conspiracy theories to be believed according to our already existing bias. So if I am to the left, I believe those things that make the right look bad. And if I lean to the right, I'm going to believe those things that make the left look bad. Now, I trust that most here would agree that uh, conspiracy theories exist on both sides. And because we are so divided as a nation, truth takes a back seat. Now, obviously, I'm speaking here in generalities. I can't address every single person uh, that falls within these categories. But what we find is that what is most important with 
I'd say most people, is that um, it makes me feel good to believe these things, and it supports my bias. Again, not everybody, but an awful lot. The power of bias is never stronger than when it comes to religion and foundational worldview beliefs. Peter makes the point that the reason that scoffers dismiss the second coming is because, in his words, they follow their own sinful desires. They don't want anything that speaks of judgment or provides any kind of speed bump in having sex with whoever, whatever, whenever they want. They want to do what they want to do without impunity. And bias keeps them from affirming the truth. This is a deep-seated spiritual bias. The bias from the scoffers in Second Peter who deny the second coming is a spiritual problem. And Peter provides the antidote. He says, know the scripture in verse 2. Know the nature of humans in verse 3. Know God the creator in verse 5. Know God the judge in verse 7. And now in verses 8 through 10, we are to know God, the eternal one. Now, I want you to consider how Peter forms his argument. This is what he says. Stir up your mind. Remember the predictions. Know this. Don't overlook this fact. You know, when critics speak about others talking about God's judgment uh, or the second coming, they say that it's purely emotional for them to say such things. And yet what Peter is appealing to is the mind, objective facts or fulfilled prophecy, the facts of the material world, the facts of the character of God. It's like an irrefutable recitation of the charges against one brought before the court. The scoffer is left with nothing but empty cynicism and false statements. The believer can rest upon the sure word of God to discern between truth and a lie. With conspiracy theories, you may or may not know what the truth is. But when it comes to spiritual truth, we've got the word of God. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In pointing to these facts, Peter is again calling his audience beloved. These are the words of a loving apostle who addresses his audience as those that he dearly loves. He's addressed the arguments of the heretics throughout this book.
but he turns his attention to believers now. Peter lovingly reminds them not to forget the kind of God that we serve. We are susceptible to deception when we forget the character of God. And in this case, how he interacts with time. Time is not the same to God as it is to man. We see the movement of time like a sequential series of still frames. When I was a teenager, back in the 1800s, I bought a Polaroid camera. There might be some of you here that are unfamiliar with a Polaroid camera. It was a camera that had a a film pack that you would load into it, and when you took the picture, you pulled out a flap to bring out a layered film. You'd let it set, and then you would peel off a layer to see your picture. It was really a, a campy way to remember moments without any claim of being a professional photograph. In fact, the pictures were not true to color, and they were often out of focus. In fact, the company website says this, discover the beautifully imperfect world of Polaroid photography. The finite perspective of time for humankind is like a Polaroid. Imperfect. Our limited perspective because of time takes one snapshot at a time. And even if we could have all of the available information known to man, we are still limited in providing what's going to be an incomplete, imperfect perspective. That's the best that we can do. We go from one moment to the next to tell a story. And whatever format we use, it is limited by time. But see, God sees it all completely in an instant. Even when we think we know the whole story, we are limited. We don't know the motives. Oh, we claim we do. We make proclamations of how this person was feeling, but we're just making a proclamation. We don't know that for sure. We don't know every detail. We never have and we never will. And our perspectives are colored by our own bias. I can't even get it right within my own marriage with just one person. How are we going to get it right with hundreds, thousands, the world? See what I'm talking about? God knows the complete story inside and out. He sees the beginning from the end. He is the what? Alpha and Omega. He has the entire movie before him. People see their stories against time. God sees time against eternity. Peter is paraphrasing the psalmist who said, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. 
For as a watch in the night, with the passage of time, we assume wisdom is acquired and growth occurs. But you see, age can diminish our capacity. We, most of us have seen it with our elderly parents, and we're going to see it in ourselves. We are all subject to time. With God, he does not need time for wisdom or growth. He does not weaken or fail as the years move on. God transcends time and its passing does not affect his being. God is sovereign over time and he uses it for his purposes. See, he could have created the entire universe in an instant. Yet he did so over a period of six days and rested the seventh. He could have freed Israel from Egypt in a moment. Yet he chose over decades to equip Moses. He could have sent Christ the first time much sooner than he did. But he waited until what Paul said was the fullness of time to come in Galatians 4.4. God uses time, but he is not limited by it. Peter uses the backdrop of time with God and man to demonstrate the infinity of God, the sovereignty of God, and the impatience of human aspirations. Think about it. You know, why hasn't Christ come back? Well, the scoffer says it's not going to happen at all. Perspectives are so limited. But this is very human. We have to remember we are prone to forget the eternality of God. And we too are impatient with him because our perspectives are limited by our own needs and our own desires. We want for a better job, money, companionship, children, change in political leaders, and whatever else we deem our lives need in the moment. And if it doesn't come at our timetable, we start drawing conclusions about God. Not according to how he is revealed in Scripture, not according to his faithfulness through the millennia, but based on our immediate circumstances. We reject the truth of the Scripture, the revealed person of Christ and the character of God, and look at how we feel in the moment. The believers in Peter's day were faced with intense persecution, and the coming of Christ had an impact upon their future hope. If you miss anything I say today, which is not unusual, remember this. 
the future coming of Christ is to make a difference in how we live now. That's hard to do when we don't think about it. That's hard to do when we don't think about judgment. The future coming of Christ is to make a difference in how we live now. The believers in Christ's day were faced with intense persecution, and the coming of Christ had an impact on their future hope. It's the same for us today. Take those desires for a spouse, or maybe a better spouse, or for a job, or maybe a better job, for more money, children, some kind of change, and wrap up all of these aspirations and realize they don't hold a candle to the impact when Christ comes and we get to reign with him. Doesn't even come close. The deepest yearnings that are wrapped up in Christ coming again in terms of fellowship, worship, are satisfied with his presence. In view of eternity, it is of supreme worth the greatest to look forward to Christ's return. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. To think that the judgment of God is slow or inactive is a misunderstanding about God and his intentions. The facts are the Son of God will come again. God's apparent delay is not because of his inability. It's not because of indifference. The critics read the flow of history as God unable or unwilling to act. And what people do not understand is that God is not operating on our timetable. God is sovereign. He has the right to decide when he will act. We are given the privilege of revelation that shows God's heart in this manner, right? His mercy and grace are in operation throughout all of history. We see it in the Old Testament and the New C.S. Lewis makes the point when he says, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. <laughs> there is no turning back then. There are no more opportunities for repentance. Repentance. There is no time left to make a change. God's patience for Christ's return is his mercy in action. Yes, many misunderstand him, and that is not a surprise. Paul said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let us remember how God was long-suffering in the years before the flood. Peter wrote in his first epistle, Formerly, they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared with Sodom and Gomorrah. God waited while Abraham interceded for the cities. God said he would spare if he could just find ten righteous men in Sodom. Joel wrote, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And in the New Testament, we read from the Apostle Paul, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now back to our passage in 2 Peter, when Peter uses the word perish, it's obvious that he's addressing those rejecting Christ and facing eternal judgment. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's capacity is to show mercy to all. He's been this way in the Old Testament and the New have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Yet humankind rejects him, denies him, mocks him, and decries his revelation to them. And so Peter calls for repentance. It means if we want to experience God's forgiveness, we turn from disbelief to Christ. Instead, many will exercise their free will to exclude God. But repentance means I change my mind. That change of mind leads to the Holy Spirit changing us into a new creation. We're told in Acts 20, 21, repentance is directed toward God and our faith toward Jesus Christ. I must understand my need of Christ. And that starts with acknowledging my sin. So repentance is a change of mind about sin. Now many discount sin. Repentance is admitting what God says about sin is true about me. I was a sinner separated from God. My identity in Christ is no longer a sinner even though I sin. I'm a new creation. But it says in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I am responsible for all of my rebellion against God. And no excuse will stand. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame some lame pastor in the past, some church, who's the president, 
I don't have a good enough job. All sin I am culpable for in my life. Repentance is a change of mind also about my punishment. If I don't take my sin seriously before a holy God, I will discount the consequences. Paul also said, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is physical death and there is spiritual eternal separation as a consequence of sin. But as Paul notes, this is all abolished when I realize Christ is the sacrifice for my sin. I will receive a new body and live eternally in his presence. And I also change my mind about Christ. No other religion, no other philosophy offers what Christ does. We cannot explain away sin. And we, I think for any fair-thinking individual, you see it all around you. We see it in political corruption. We see it in man's inhumanity to other men. We see it with the human mind being so depraved. We call evil good, good evil. We can't tell reality from unreality. No amount of religious rigmarole can expiate sin or atone atone for it. Only Christ can do that. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the truth of it. And so we repent about God, about my sin, about Christ, and I realize Christ is the answer. That's the reason that God has been patient with the second coming. So more can realize this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord is not a term that signifies one event, but it's a series of future events that point to God's judgment. They describe what Peter calls in verse 7 a day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. The day of the Lord includes the destruction of the present heaven and earth by fire in, verse, in this uh, verse here, verse 10. It will usher in a new heaven and new earth in verse 13. We also read in Revelation 20, the thousand years when Satan is bound and the resurrection of the blessed and holy reign with Christ. We also see in that chapter the last battle, the judgment of the devil judgment of the dead, the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, again, the new heaven and new earth, the holy city with everything new. All of this can be tucked into the day of the Lord. 
and the arrival of the day of the Lord may be deferred because of God's judgment. But don't be fooled. The day of the Lord is coming. Delay does not suggest non-fulfillment. In fact, it will arrive like a thief. In other words, it is unexpected. It is, it is sudden. Jesus used the thief motif in Matthew to refer to when he comes again in Matthew 24, 43. And Paul wrote, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. See, when the world is feeling safe and secure, then God's judgment will arrive. The pregnancy metaphor speaks of an intensity of pain. That's what that judgment's going to be like. But Jesus has warned us that it all is coming. So let us take heed. And be found ready. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And will be burned up and dissolved. Some kind of physical phenomena will occur. And that by the word of God. Cause the heavenly bodies above the earth. To be destroyed. It will be accompanied by an unmistakable sound. That a, a divine occurrence has materialized. Isaiah and John in, Revelation, uh, John in Revelation speak of the sky being rolled up like a scroll. That's in Isaiah 34.4 and Revelation 6.14. The earth will be burned up along with all that is in it. All elements make up the physical world will be dissolved by heat and utterly melt away. And one commentator said this, man's great works will also be burned up. All the things that men boast about, his cities, his great buildings, his inventions, his achievements, will be destroyed in a moment of time. When sinners stand before the throne of God, they will have nothing to point to as evidence of their greatness. It will all be gone. The heavens are going to be destroyed by burning. The elements are going to melt with intense heat. And after that, we will look for a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells, end quote. We're not told the medium for the heat, but God alone is responsible for initiating the action and dissolving the elements to make a way for a new heaven and new earth. Isaiah said, that I quoted before in Isaiah 34, 4, he says here in Isaiah 13, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. We see this marching through our streets. The end result is that the works that are done on it will be exposed 
everything that God has created and everything that humankind has made will be laid bare before Almighty God. And no one will escape answering for their time on earth. The people who have rejected God will stand before God for a judgment of their sin and will spend eternity without him. And even believers will be judged for their works. We have heaven guaranteed because of Christ. But God will judge us and give us reward depending upon our works, our faith in Christ as we went through life. Then Revelation 21.1 tells us that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, the culmination will be the world will finally be as intended. What are we to do in the meantime? What are we to do in the meantime? Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War. After his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night. And when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just after sunup, there was a big banner across the garage. Welcome home, Dad. <laughs> How did they know, he wondered to himself. No one had called. The crew themselves hadn't expected to leave so quickly. Robbins relates, when I walked into the house, the kids about half-dressed for school screamed, Daddy! Susan came running down the hall. She looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. How did you know? I asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you would be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us, so we were ready every day. That's it. That's it. Let us have our lives ready every day to greet our coming Savior. Let's pray.